0: I'm John Dauberstein, Senior Editor at No-Till Farmer, and welcome to the latest edition of our 2018 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, The Nuts and Bolts of No-Till Crop Nutrition Part 1, is brought to you by Calmer Cornheads. I encourage you to subscribe to this series currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes when they're released. If you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. I'd like to take a moment to thank Calmer Cornheads for sponsoring today's episode. Calmer Cornheads is home of the world's first 12- and 15-inch cornheads and residue management upgrade kits. Their patented BT Chopper stalk rolls cut, chop, and shear corn stalks into confetti-like residue for accelerated decomposition and have been voted the No-Till Product of the Year list five times by farmers across America. As your Corn specialists, Specialist, Calmer Corn is committed to providing proven solutions to a variety of your harvesting problems and offers a 100% satisfaction guarantee. For more information, visit calmercornheads.com or call 309-629-9000. Even though there's an ever-growing list of options for measuring and managing soil and plant fertility, it doesn't mean more traditional methods must be thrown out the window, says John Grove. In the first part of a two-part series, we'll be sharing with you on no-till crop nutrition, The director of the University of Kentucky Research and Education Center will discuss the unique characteristics of no-till soil environments when compared to soils on conventionally tilled farms and how those conditions can affect the availability of nutrients to plants. He'll also talk about nutrient stratification in no-tilled soils and the role it might play in your plant nutrition program as you assess your crop's needs. While enjoying this program, I also encourage you to download a PDF of John's presentation provided on the No Till Farmer website landing page for this podcast so you can follow along and learn more about successful no till nutrient management.
1: One of my significant objectives here is to try to give some value to some of the older diagnostic tra- practices like soil testing and plant tissue analysis, some of the things we're can do with each of those that we might not have been able to do before, particularly in a no-till environment. And I want to reduce some of the drama associated with some of the newer tools like chlorophyll meters and proximal canopy sensors. And my whole cloth type objective is to kind of bring it all together and think about a more holistic management plan and cost-effective at that. The no-till crop environment, believe me, is significantly different. And because of that, you do need to pay attention particularly with soil testing, but also uh, some other things in terms of nutrient management. These different soil conditions are really critical to appreciating how you're going to go at this environment. We all know what a no-till soil is supposed to do, primarily we want it to hold and deliver a lot of water, we want it to hold and deliver oxygen, kind of the unheralded nutrient that roots need, a lot of people don't give it much credit. We want to hold and deliver needed nutrition. And we want it to be generally free of root inhibiting factors, whether they're chemical, biological, or physical. No-till soil physics is significantly different than what you encounter in a tilled soil. It's generally cooler, and it's cooler all year long. It's not just cooler in the spring when you think it's hurting you. It's going to be cooler in the summer and in the fall where it actually might be helping you. It's generally wetter, particularly after each rainfall event. No-till soils tend to hold more moisture and they hold it longer. If we take the first two together, we generally get what soil physicists call a higher heat capacity. So for every cubic inch of soil, it's gonna take more energy, more sunlight, or more length of a certain sunlight period in order to get it to warm up by each degree Fahrenheit. Occasionally, not always, we will have a bit higher bulk density in a no-till environment. That's not always the case. It is sometimes the case. And if we take that one along with the fact that it typically is a bit wetter after every rain, generally we do observe somewhat lower oxygen levels and because of that somewhat higher carbon dioxide level. Now, part of the carbon dioxide is because of somewhat increased biological activity. Depends on the time of the year. Remember, when it's cooler, biology slows down. Your no-till environment is somewhat cooler, but you have some things working for you in terms of the physics. Generally speaking, and this really needs to be taken into account when we're soil testing, is we have fairly intense surface stratification of organic matter, associated nutrients with organic matter like nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, and boron. We also see soil test levels of P and K tend to be higher because of nutrient cycling back to the surface and we don't redistribute that with tillage. And we also see surface stratification of soil acidity. Even in systems that do not get much nitrogen, you will have surface stratification of soil acidity because of the decomposition and the generation of organic acids as residues from your crop and your cover crops decompose. Generally, we observe lower phosphorus fixation potential due to that greater level of organic matter. This is kind of what stratification looks like if you're looking at organic matter in a relatively undisturbed human region grassland soil. Fairly intense level of organic matter close to the surface, all the way down to about eight inches. So it shouldn't be surprising that in a no-till environment we're going to have a lot of soil test P or K or zinc or whatever also stratified up in the surface of that soil. Now, how you want to assess that and how you're gonna credit it, you may end up in some states where they've not adjusted. Kentucky has adjusted our soil test procedures for no-till, undisturbed grasslands, including turf. We no longer test zero to six, we test zero to four. But even we recommend zero to two for things like pH. So you have to assess Your situation and understand what your lab or what your university recommendations are based on in terms of sampling depth. Because stratification is really important to what no-till soils do for you. I am not a good believer, as I said yesterday, I am not a believer that stratification is harmful, particularly east of the Mississippi where humidity is generally more than adequate to maintain good root nutrient contact in these stratified no-till surface soils. The example here shows a low stratified meaning a fairly evenly distributed amount of phosphorus with depth here versus this one here which is highly stratified is a no-till environment, this one here is a moldboard plow environment in this particular case. They equal the same, they equal 20 ppm soil test P if you consider the full 8 inches here, this is in centimeters, but it's a full eight inches of soil. What we've observed, generally speaking, is that stratification is a positive. this particular case, we've got a number of years of soybean phosphorus uptake, and we're seeing that what we get here is a peaking in phosphorus uptake across both double crop and full season beans, that's why it's relativized, at a lower average soil test level in a highly stratified environment than in a low stratification, but sorry, than in a low stratification environment. This study here has been going on um, in this particular case I took the data out for a 10-year period. In this particular case phosphorus about 92 P205 or 40 pounds of P is being applied every year and that accounts for this series of open diamonds here. This is the cumulative P applied. It's in a corn-soybean rotation It gets applied ahead of the corn. So this is corn, next year's beans, so on. Then we measured in all the grain we took off, we measured the amount of phosphorus removed. And that accounts for this amount here. And then what we decided to look at was how much phosphorus change in soil test have we had in the surface 0 to 3 inches and how much have we had in the next 3 to 6 inches. There's literally nothing to make a line with here at the 3 to 6. But we do have this creeping amount of Increase in salt test P started down here around 12, and now it's probably around 16. So if you take the amount you've applied, subtract the amount you removed, and then determine how much P2O5 it took to adjust salt test P, you get this figure. It takes about in this salt test environment about 8.2 pounds of P2O5 to adjust your salt test P by one pound. This is malic three, by the way. Now, the thing that makes that interesting is that we also have some other data over a wide range of environments here where we're looking at, uh, as a function of salt test P, how much P205 did it take? And in this same region, based on this data that Bill Thom and Jim Zollerheide came up with, it takes 10 to 12 pounds of salt test P to change, I mean, of P205 to change a pound of salt test P. Now, admittedly, that's in a lab, but it also represents a well-tilled environment where you've maximized your mixing, you've maximized your exposure. So you get some real benefits of not mixing and not fixing phosphorus in a no-till environment. But how do you soil test for that? Well, you don't soil test by integrating it over a big, deep sample. You have to take a shallower sample. Potassium is even more directly responsive We've got data that shows, in this case we looked at sampling 2 inches, 2 to 6, 6 to 12, and this is the salt test level in the no-till environment and this is in the moldboard plow environment. A little bit of stratification here but a lot more there. If we look at integrating it, 0 to 2 is still going to be the same numbers, but 0 to 6 means I've taken this number plus 2 times this number and averaged it out. I'm now at 126 versus 119, and when I go 0 to 12, I'm actually about the same. And this is reflected in this ratio here where it's 30% higher in the 2-inch depth, only 6% higher over a 0 to 6-inch depth, and it's almost 1.0 or the same over a 12-inch depth. And then if I look at the amount of potassium being taken up by corn crops, it's about 30% higher in this soil, but it's also about 30% higher in the corn crop. So if you really wanna understand where your corn crop, in this case, soybeans don't respond quite the same, but you really wanna understand what part of the potassium it's accessing. This is done with a wheat cover crop, by the way, so there's a lot of residue here from that crop in this corn. It's not a four inch sample even, it's more like a two inch sample. Another thing that happens is that counter exchange capacity in these no-till surface soils is due more and more to organic matter and less and less due to the soil minerals. The implication on that in terms of fertility and chemistry is the potassium that is applied is not bound quite as tightly. Potassium binding to CEC on minerals, except for certain things like Brazilian oxasol, is going to be significantly weaker. So therefore, it's held, but it's not held as strongly, so it's easier for crop recovery, which is why we think we observed what we observed in the previous slide. Organic matter also plays a very great role in the bioavailability of some of the metal micronutrients. They, as that organic matter degrades, it creates chelates, dissolved organic carbon, that often interacts with some of these metals, copper, manganese, iron, and zinc in particular, and helps maintain their availability a bit better in that no-till environment than they might have been maintained in a tilled environment where they're mixing with more mineral soil. Turning to no-till soil biology, one thing is abundantly clear. No-till, whether you have a cover crop or you don't, is going to have a larger biological community. Now, it may not be more diversified, but there's just a lot more there. There's a lot more microbial fungal biomass. It is definitely more stratified. It is where its food source is, which is largely in the surface of that surface soil. Because of that physics part where it's going to be wetter, longer and potentially lower in oxygen there is a subtle and sometimes not very subtle depending on soil drainage shift towards a wetter more anaerobic environment plays hell with nitrogen. But it is what it is and you have to manage around that. It's less oxidative, you lose nitrogen to denitrification unless you're on a well-drained soil and then you might lose a little bit more nitrogen to, re- to leaching. Another key factor is that aggregate turnover, the ability of aggregates to be formed and then break down as the organic matter core breaks down is slowed in this environment because again, it's less oxidative. That works for you, but it also works in the sense that again, it puts pressure on nitrogen, sometimes sulfur, nutrition. Where nitrogen is concerned in no-till environments, we typically see faster immobilization into organic nitrogen. We see faster denitrification, loss as nitrogen dioxide or nitrous oxide gas. We also see faster volatilization because it's driven by a biological enzyme, urease, except in really high pH soils further to the west. And we see slower oxidative processes like nitrogen mineralization and nitrification. Although, once it warms up, you wouldn't have a really detectable, noticeable difference on that. This is a thin section of an aggregate. These are actually individual clay layers. So this is a really small piece of organic matter that forms the core of this aggregate. In a tilled environment, the microbes attack this devil, they break it down, the aggregate breaks apart, and then it reforms around another piece of organic matter in the next seasonal cycle. But in a no-till environment, this thing's gonna persist a lot longer, and you're gonna have these zones that are voids that are low in oxygen, high in water, and they are anaerobic microcytes. They play hell with nitrogen. There's no two ways about it.
0: We'll rejoin my conversation with John Grove in a moment, but I wanted to take time to once again thank our sponsor, Calmer Cornheads, for supporting our No Till Farmer podcast series. Calmer Cornheads is home of the world's first 12 and 15 inch cornheads and in residue management upgrade kits. Their patented BT Chopper stalk rolls cut, chop, and shear corn stalks into confetti like residue for accelerated decomposition and have been voted to the no-till product of the year list five times by farmers across America. As your cornhead specialist, Calmer is committed to providing proven solutions to a variety of your harvesting problems and offers a 100% satisfaction guarantee. For more information, visit calmercornheads.com or call 309-629-9000. Now let's get back to John Grose's presentation as he shares a series of steps no-tillers can take in determining nutritional needs of crops, as well as some tips for getting the best perspectives on nutrients from soil tests. This includes correlating the results of soil tests to yield and ensuring soil tests are calibrated for crop, soil, and region.
1: So what do we need? We need no-till crop nutrition to be kind of a series of steps. Now I tend to follow a seasonal dynamic here. Some people are less than comfortable with that but it's mostly what growers do. First thing we want to do is assess the status of the soil environment. We want to determine our needs and look at our management options. We want to look at that crop and we want to adjust it in season if we can. You're not going to discover that I'm a big believer in in in-season nitrogen or in-season whatever, but sometimes it does work. You have to learn, adjust, be flexible, and sometimes you have to be creative in terms of how you address your nutritional challenges. And then you start it all over again for the next year. I've been in this business for a long time, and I can tell you I've gotten a lot of gray hairs from basically being forced to learn it again and again. I never knew what a no-till field looked like until I arrived at UK in April 1st of 1981. Had never no-tilled a thing. Trust me, those early years were ugly. What are our management options? Well first we can look at rates and how should we change maybe soil sampling procedures to get a better idea of what our rate should be because soil test results often guide this very critical part of management. Timing. We want to avoid losses due to no-till conditions, and there are some losses, particularly with nitrogen, that we need to avoid. And we want to use our nutrient cycling from the crop or cover crop residues. We want to use them to our benefit. Placement. Sometimes placement is very useful in a no-till environment. Sometimes it means more steel in the ground, but it is useful. And sometimes this is challenging to achieve as some of our cover crops have gotten thicker and tougher, there have been challenges that we now see some equipment coming out that really helps us deal with it. And in the sources choices we have, we definitely want to, again, continue to avoid losses due to these no-till conditions. So I'm gonna talk first a little bit about the basic tools and the way I kind of view them. They won't necessarily agree with everybody we don't have to gee and haw in order to do a good job in no-till crop production. But first, I'm gonna make sure we understand some of the basics between what is called correlation and what is called calibration of soil test results. And then I'm gonna talk a little bit about recommendations and recommendation philosophies. I'm warning you, some of you will not like what I say about that, it happens. We'll talk a bit about plant tissue analysis can do and not do for you, chlorophyll meters and canopy sensors. And my hope is that at the end of the time, we'll end up with more of a sustainable diagnosis program, something you can work with year over year and through different crops, because I suspect, like I am on my farms in Michigan, I'm now growing crops that I never grew before. Some of you are going to make some changes like that too. So we're going to do both. I argue that if all you're relying upon is soil testing, you are not where you want to be with your nutrient diagnosis program. Plant tissue analysis has a critical role and I'll get into that. We're gonna talk a little bit about pre-season, in-season, and post-season evaluation, although post-season is really preseason for the next year. But the whole objective of preseason is you're anticipating stress. You're designing your nutrient management program in order to not see stress. In season we're monitoring the existing program but we're also hoping we can diagnose or fix a problem in season if we can. Sometimes you will not be able to and that'll just be something you learn for the next go round. Post season, admittedly it's an autopsy but it can be a very valuable tool to learn from and helps you anticipate the next season. So we're gonna talk a little bit about soil sampling. By the way, this dude is still messed up because he's doing it at an angle. A representative no-till sample is not exactly the same thing as it would be in a tilled environment. Time, yes, I strongly recommend that if you have a spring sampling protocol for some fields, you stick with it. And if you have a fall sampling protocol for other fields, you stick with that. Don't try mixing up spring and fall samples. It can get messy. But there are differences within the profile vertical space that really need to be taken into account, those stratifications items that I talked with you about earlier. If you suspect you have a soil acidity problem, you really do need to take a surface 0 to 2 inch sample and get it checked out. If you really have been observing that you've got low salt sp, but yet your crops don't appear to be suffering, Maybe you better back off and take a zero to three inch sample and figure out just how much phosphorus you've got in that critical zone where those roots are recovering phosphorus. So we want to understand that we have to sample at different depths and we want to understand why we're doing it. We all know about differences that occur across the field, we call horizontal space, but I argue. There's no point grid or zone sampling unless you and your dealer are committed to managing it. You're just wasting money. If you're not committed, and I see a lot of this going on, people take a lot of samples, trying to divide a field up into zones according to the yield map or whatever protocol they're following, and then they don't hook up with a dealer in order to execute. You're just, you may learn something the first time, but after the second time, it's good money after bad. Again, you might wanna think about different strategies for minimizing variability within samples. These are a couple of grad students prefer the one over here and I prefer they walk this one over here. For those who are willing to get into it, zone sampling can, if you have the right kind of field variability, prove valuable. This particular field, which is about 100 acres, clearly has some areas that are testing low. These are low, they're in red for a good reason. But then it's got some devils around here that are, you know, they're out of sight. They're, some of these, they're in the 100 pluses. When you have a field like this, and sometimes you have to discover this to understand, and we do have a protocol for that, where you do a preliminary grid assessment and then just sample five out of the grids and see what kind of variability you got. You will find fields that merit really merit variable rate, in this case phosphorus application. And you can see here, rates here range from, you know, a lot of them are in the low area here in terms of the amount of P2O5, that's these right here, here, to some that got a huge dose. Now I don't know how this field got this way, and a lot of people who are renting ground don't know how it got that way either. But the bottom line is it really paid in this field to redistribute phosphorus from where it needed to be, uh, from where it didn't need to be to where it needed to be. The reason vertical no-till space, I'm going to return to this vertical thing again, is so critical is because of the mobility of chemistry. And in a no-till environment you're not mixing it back up to make it start over again. You're leaving it in place so then that vertical differences in nutrient mobility really get time to express themselves. Nitrate, sulfate are more mobile. Anybody who tries to tell you you can determine sulfur availability from a zero to six inch sample is either an idiot or thinks you are. Unless your salt test sulfur is through the roof in the zero to six inch sample, then of course you don't need to go any deeper. Less tillage, less mixing, more stratification, moisture, retention, root growth, all are coincident with surface nutrition. So again, stratification for me is a good thing. Valid recommendations, whether they come from the private or the public sector, are based in really good research or need to be. The first step is a correlation step. What is the relationship of the soil test parameter to yield, or in certain crops, quality, like flowers. I'm growing gladiolus for the first time, so trust me, it's a lot more about quality than it is about yield. It has to be calibrated, and the calibration step is, well, at a soil test P level, let's say, that's too low, how much do I have to apply? It has to be calibrated by crop, by soil or region, and then, in this case, by tillage system. Already showed you that it takes two-thirds as much P2O5 to change soil test P on that group of Kentucky soils than it did if they were well-mixed with tillage. So the correlation is yield versus soil test. Calibration is the amount of applied nutrient versus the soil test value to bring you up. This is a typical correlation. Yield is here expressed as a percent of the maximum, and typically we're working to get people into this range, maybe just a little bit above this range, and trying to keep them out of the non-economic zone over here. Generally most labs make recommendations based on if you're very low to low we need to add more than what your crop is going to remove Because the first hog at the trough is either microbes or minerals and we need to placate them to a certain extent Medium we typically add a little bit more than removal H. We're just trying to maintain the salt test level Very high we're adding nothing now. What's very high is like beauty. It's kind of in the eyes of the holder but I argue Any soil test level that you're applying nutrient to that won't give you a payback to that, particularly when corn and beans and other crops are priced the way they are these days, is something we cannot afford, at least for another few years. Typically, we get, right here at the medium-high break, we're roughly 35% probability of a profitable response in the current year. In the current year. We're already at 35%. Now, that doesn't mean you won't get some value out of that nutrient application in subsequent years. You will. But you have to give that a thought if you're in a cash flow crunch. Calibration. When you've got a low soil test, like in this example from North Dakota on wheat, it's going to take a fair dose of phosphate in order to get you where you need to be up in here somewhere. If you're at 10, it takes less. If you're already at 20, it takes even less. So that's what I meant by calibration. knowing. Now that amount, that amount that's going to take, these amounts here that's going to take to bring these, depends on whether the soil is sandy, how much organic matter it has, what crop you're growing. It, that's why calibration is so important. From this, we establish what we call the fertilizer requirement. Now, soil test interpretation, there are a lot of different approaches, some of which I've already alluded to. Build up and maintenance is popular with some folks. Fertilizing the soil, I call it. They build it up and then they maintain it. The question is, what salt test level are they maintaining it at? If you're maintaining it at a level that you think the grandkids are going to love, you better make sure the grandkids are going to farm. You better make sure the grandkids are going to see the farm. Most public places, including the one I work for, believe in what's called the sufficient level of available nutrient philosophy, which they call fertilizing for the crop. By the way, we still add more, when it's very low, we still have to add more because to get that crop where you want it, you're going to have to add more than crop removal. By the way, don't even get me started on nutrient balance or basic cation saturation ratio. None of this works. It's been thoroughly discredited by 40 years of field research. It doesn't pay. But we have some others. Insurance, fertility, sometimes useful, sometimes not. Yield goals, sometimes useful, depending on how realistic you are, sometimes not. The wrong recommendation can result in some really ugly losses. A colleague of mine, Lloyd Murdoch, along with several others, we looked at corn, wheat, soybean, over a period of eight years. Always going back into these, these are fairly large areas. We have... The sufficiency recommendation represented at 100% because we've got different crops here. We had to express everything in percent, whether it was total fertilizer recommended, total fertilizer cost, or yield, they all had to be put into a percent term. So if we set this at 100 bucks an acre, or 100 pounds an acre, sorry, then these other philosophies, which were sufficiency plus maintenance, sufficiency plus maintenance plus micros, cation balance or nutrient balance plus maintenance and then cation balance plus maintenance plus microbes, the pounds of fertilizer just keep going up. So for every 100 pounds here, we had 185, 191 up to 239. Fertilizer cost tends to escalate quite a bit here too. For every 100 bucks on up to about 230 bucks. And then when it came to the yields, zip. And over eight years and 10 sites, this is a lot of data. And this is how it summarizes out. Yeah, there's a few places we need zinc in Kentucky. We got a few zinc responses. But all that got factored in. So how'd you like to be the guy who spends, you know, this kind of money and gets 5% less crop? You and your banker are not going to be in love. Other things that I see on prescriptions. Last month I was treated to two prescriptions by a banker. They consult with guys like me occasionally. They say, what do you see here? that you want me to ask my client about. I don't know the client, I'm not allowed to know the client. Pelletized lime rate's less than 500 pounds. How much acidity are you really gonna control with that? Acidity is controlled by pounds. A little bit on quality, but a really good ag lime is gonna be fine. Gypsum rate's greater than 125 pounds. 125 pounds will nail a sulfur deficiency, no problem. Pretty good source of sulfur. But unless your subsoil pH is less than 4.8, There isn't any data in the world that shows that 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 gypsum is going to help you if you're trying to put on a ton of gypsum and thinking you're going to do something for soil structure. Don't get me started. These liquid copper, humic acid, humus, and humates, you're in a no-till environment. Your dissolved organic carbon is already five to ten times higher than it is in a tilled environment. You know, the dissolved organic carbon in a no-till soil solution is a thousand to ten thousand times higher than what you're going to put on with three gallons of per acre of liquid liquid carbon in a jug. Chemical fertilizer additives. I don't like very many of these. I do like NBPT and DCD and nitropyrin in certain nitrogen situations, but I've been looking at the phosphorus ones and I haven't found a single one that works well for me and some that don't work at all. And I won't even talk much about these biological fertilizer additives People who say they're going to put microbial bugs and they're going to put it in liquid UAN have never thought about salt curing hams. That's what salt does. It kills bugs, all the bugs. For those of you who are tempted sometimes to fertilize the soil for the next generation or maybe even for the next season, you need to remember, and this is from my colleague Grant Thomas, the soil does not pay any interest. In fact, all it pays is negative interest. All that's going to happen, even in a no-till environment, is you're going to get losses. Whether it's fixation or erosion, leaching, whatever. And the chemical and biological uncertainty associated with what you've got in your fertilizer bank makes it a lot less valuable than just leaving the dollars in the bank until you need to buy a dose of fertilizer. Generally, all the research shows that smaller annual doses are more efficient than larger maintenance applications that are applied less often. And what's worse, although inflation's not bad now, inflation actually causes the present value of residual fertility to be lower. It has to be discounted going into the future. So if you've got 100 bucks of residual fertility, it's only worth 97 next year, and it's going to be worth 3% less the year after that. It's not gaining anything. Now, there are some real challenges with salt testing, too, and I'm not going to lie about that. There's a lot of salt test results that I get that I understand there's no calibration data behind it. We have labs who service growers in the state of Kentucky that routinely test for sulfur, test for copper, test for manganese, test for iron. They do not have a valid test because they, well they can't make a valid recommendation based on that test. So you need to ask your soil test lab, particularly the test lab, not the dealer, about this, because the test lab is going to know the basis behind what's in that printout.
0: If you're listening to this podcast and it's got you thinking about your nutrient management program, you'll be sure to pick up helpful tips and information at the upcoming 27th annual National Dough Tillage Conference. Register online today for just $304 and $85 savings off the full rate. Save even more when you register additional farm family members for just $279. Or complete and return the downloadable registration form by going to notillconference.com. To register by phone or to speak with an NNTC staff member, please call 262-432-0388. Or email your questions to NNTC at no-tillfarmer.com we'd like to sincerely thank john grove director of the university of kentucky's research and education center for sharing very in-depth information about the way no-till environments can affect nutrient availability and how growers should go about getting the answers they need from the soil about plant nutrient requirements tune in august 24th to hear part two of this two-part podcast series on no-till nutrient management as John discusses the benefits of in-season assessment tools for nutrients, such as plant tissue analysis, and he weighs in on the usefulness of other technologies available to growers for measuring nutrient needs in their no-till crops. For those listeners who'd like to hear more about successful strategies for no-tilling, please visit no-tillfarmer.com podcasts. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Calmer Cornheads, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, feel free to drop me an email at jdauberstein at lessintermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2430. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and dryland no-tiller e-newsletter and be sure to follow us on twitter at no-till farmer with farmer spelled f-a-r-m-r and on our no-till farmer facebook page for the university of kentucky researcher john grove and our entire staff here at no-till farmer i'm senior editor john dobberstein thank you for listening